So I have always remembered being a very fearful person. I, I like to say that fear is in my DNA, which is not really a good thing. I think I just have a good imagination. Robust, maybe not good, robust. I remember being a kid and just being scared of everything. Earthquakes is gonna happen. I'm gonna get swallowed up into a crevice. I can't watch movies at a certain movie theater because it's by a gas station. And what's gonna happen? It is going to explode and I'm gonna die. I thought this way of thinking was normal. So I brought it into my marriage. So when I got married to Nathan, I thought, He's the best. I still think he's pretty great. We've been married for 14 years now. I know. I know the truth. So he's pretty great. And I love him so much. I loved him so much. So I had this idea that I love him too much. I'm idolizing him. God is going to like take him out of my story. And I'm going to be alone and sad forever. And then I had children. And then comes on this whole other new anxiety of wanting to protect them. And I would just have these intrusive thoughts terrible things that were going to happen to them. I was sure of it. It made for my my mind to not be a very peaceful place to live. But God in his kindness has not left me there, thankfully. Especially at the beginning of the pandemic, I just came to this point where I could not handle the fear. I couldn't handle the fear. My normal coping mechanisms of crying in a corner were not working. <laughs> uh, but God just like beckoned me to himself, invited me to learn about him. I needed to understand his character better, His the person of God. Like, who is God? We know what Jesus has done for us, but like, who is God? Just through reading the Word, I've discovered that He truly is good. He is good. He is who He says He is, and He says He's good. He is faithful. He will never leave me. He will never cast me out. And I think that was just a terrifying thing. I just, I was always sure that I would get in some emotional pain or situation. I tried to prepare myself with these worst case scenario thinking like, what if, what if this happened? God kindly has brought me to this place of turning my what ifs into even ifs. Like even if something terrible was to happen, I'm still with you. And I am still good, even if it doesn't feel good in the moment, right? And just so knowing the character of God and knowing the promises of God has just made me feel so much more peace. I could not have come to this place without Jesus. And then just also God helping me to realize that I was, I do idolize, I idolize my comfort. I idolize a full gas tank and, and milk and eggs and chicken and beef. <laughs> I want what I want and I idolize my children often and I idolize my husband. And God brought me to this place just helping me to realize that those are gifts, but they're not God that I am made for Him, I am made to worship Him. And when I remember that, remember who He is, remember who I am to Him, then I can really have peace. And I love Psalm 23. It just brought me so much comfort. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me. <laughs> He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I just think that's such a beautiful picture. God is never asking us to go out alone. He is always with us. He is leading us. What a good time to remember this at Christmas, right? Like Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace. <laughs> For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, amen to that. Hey, church. Amen to that. Don't you just love Carrie Bromberger? Like, she just has a way, doesn't she? Uh, Good morning, everybody uh, that is here with me in Theater One. Good morning to all of you who are watching online. We have people... Uh, down the hall in our overflow slash, uh, slash socially distanced theater. Uh, just trying to create as much space for everybody in their various comfort levels uh, to be a part of our church family. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to extend a huge welcome uh, to all of you. My name is Chris. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, if you're new uh, or joining us or watching for the first time, uh, one of the leaders here, uh, yeah. And I just, I'm just sitting over there, you know, singing, watching the band, uh, watching the videos, and I'm just like, wow. I don't know if you ever have these moments, maybe this is just me, but you're just like, oh, pinch me. Like, is this real? Like, do I actually get to be a part of this? Like, this is ridiculous. And I'm, like, in a way better position than you because I actually get paid money to do this. You guys just do it for free. Like, this is amazing. Like, I'm so, I, 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 I'm just gushing right now. I, I, this isn't fake. This is legit. Just love, love, love our church family. I really do. Uh, I love you. I love what Jesus is doing here. Uh, yeah, just, just fantastic. And so if you're new, man, uh, you stumbled into a great thing. Not a perfect thing, but a great thing. I heard somebody say once, and it's true uh, of, of uh, family, but it's also true of church. He said the only, the only difference between uh, a dysfunctional family and a functional family is the functional family talks about their dysfunction. That's the only difference. So you stumble onto a great thing, but we're just super, like, I don't know. We like being together, but we're pretty messed up, too. But the thing that makes this great is what God's doing among us. Amen, church? Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go Well, go to Matthew chapter 1 to start. We're going to kick off there. We are in week 2 uh, of our Advent series. And as you can see uh, from, uh, from the, the passage of Scripture that we've been reading and from uh, from the, the video that we just watched. What we've been doing here, and let me just maybe just set this up one step further back. Um, the, the, the theme of Advent, the word Advent, literally means like the, the awaiting of a, or an arrival. Like there's like kind of this anticipation for this arrival that is coming. And if you go into the Old Testament, like the way that this would have been understood, and this is what you, you see as you're hearing these Isaiah passages and other songs that we're singing as, in, as a part of our Sunday liturgy, is the people of God in the Old Testament were, were waiting, they were adventing for the coming Messiah. For, for, I mean, they didn't know this, but for Jesus to come. <clears throat> and throughout church history, we have taken, uh, Christians have taken the, the time leading up to the Christmas season to celebrate Advent. Uh, but Jesus has come, right? He's come, he's lived, he's gone to the cross, he's, he's resurrected, he's up in heaven. So, so what are we waiting for? What is our, what is our adventing? Well, we are adventing or, or awaiting the second coming of Jesus, the second advent. And, and, and there's this sense in us in which we're, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And there's this line from uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a, a, a children's Bible that we actually sell out in the lobby. And if you haven't read it, even if you're an adult, go get it, read it. It's good for your heart. There's this line in there that Sally Lloyd 
Jones uses to describe what Jesus is going to do in the new heavens and the new earth, where he says he is going to make everything sad come untrue. Now, just hit pause for a second. Just sit in that for a moment. Think about like where we are, what's happening in our world right now, how like off the charts crazy this is. Isn't that a good word? Like there is a day that is coming where everything sad is going to come untrue. That's a good word for our world, but my suspicion is it's probably a good word for you. And so as we come together leading up to Christmas, we're adventing, we're saying the world's a broken place, my life is broken, but I'm longing for Jesus to come back, amen? Amen? And everything sad would come untrue. And so what we've been doing is going through, in Matthew chapter 1, there is this this, uh, genealogy that leads up to the birth of Christ. And the word genealogy, like uh, the the Latin, or Greek rather, is uh, Latin. The Greek is is also the word for Genesis, this this origin story of Jesus. And in in first century Jewish culture, genealogies were very significant. It was was much like a resume, a person's resume. And so the things that you would put on your resume were were really important things. And what we see in Jesus' genealogy, this... There's this, this very unusual fact where there are five women, if you include Mary, five women that are in his genealogy. And so last week, uh, Andrew did a wonderful job teaching, or two weeks ago, I should say, did a wonderful job teaching on uh, the, the name Tamar and her story. Uh, there is Rahab, there's Bathsheba, there's obviously Mary, and then today we're going to look at the story of Ruth. But, but what's fascinating about this is that in the... Or, no, we're not going to look at Ruth. We're going to look at Rahab. Sorry, I said that twice. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, but what's fascinating about the genealogy of, of Jesus is that there are women listed in it. So this was, as Andrew said last week, a very patriarchal society. And so it would be uncommon to have women's names in a genealogy. But what's even more interesting about the way that this genealogy is written and the women that are included is is these women, you know, these weren't like matriarchs of, of uh, you know, the, the history of the nation of Israel. These women were, like, like they, had, they had like some stories, right? Like it was... It, it, Women of ill repute, I guess, is a polite way of saying it. Like, there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of mess. And there's this beautiful thing where God in his providence chooses, right? Remember, the genealogy is God's, like, working through human history to bring about the coming of Jesus. He chooses these people to be a part of God's story. Like, how crazy is that? And as I was processing this, I was just thinking, like, if we were going to write the story, like, if you and I were going to sit down and go, hey, let's, let's make up a thing. This would not be the way we would do it, right? Like, you just think about my kids for a second, and, like, they would way rather have LeBron James as their father, right? Like, if they could just write their own genealogy, like, they'd be like, take Chris Sinus all out. Probably not. I think they like me. But LeBron James, right? 6'8", dashingly handsome. Well, I guess we're both dashingly handsome. But, like, just a physical specimen, Right? My kids are all ballers. Like, they would just love that. They would love that. Instead, they got like short, stocky. They got George Costanza, right? Short, stocky, and bald. They wanted LeBron James. They got George Costanza. Like, they just lost the lottery. But when we think about like how we would write the story, that we write LeBron James into the story. But here, Matthew writes in George Costanza's. A whole bunch of nobodies, a whole bunch of didn't get it right type people. And it's just this beautiful picture of God's grace, his kindness to us. 
that he actually chooses us. He wants us. He desires us. He saves us despite the mess and despite the brokenness. So let's just read Matthew chapter 1, the first few verses to get to Rahab because that's who we're going to be looking at. So this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you're like... We have a maternity nurse in our church, uh, Erica, and she was telling me that like there's a lot of babies being born. And so if you're looking for baby names, get your, get your notepad out. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Anibadab. Just quick Bible reading trick here. Fast and confident, nobody will even know. <laughs> Aminadab, the father of Nation. There's a good one. There's a good name. Nation, the father of Solomon, not to be confused with Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. There we go, Rahab. That's who we are going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, flip back now. Go to Joshua chapter 2. And in Joshua chapter 2, we are going to see the story of Rahab, and it's a beautiful story of God's grace. So Rahab, or Joshua chapter 2, sorry, starting in verse 1, here is how this story starts. Troy already read it, but we'll go back over some of this. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent out two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So let me just kind of set up what's happening at this time in the nation of Israel's history. So uh, God, as Andrew laid out uh, two weeks ago, God, through a man named Abraham, is, is building this people for himself, the people of God. And this nation uh, is promised to come through the seeds of Abraham. And God starts unfolding his plan in human history. And, and through Abraham, the, the nation of Israel is formed. The nation of Israel, as a part of their history, ends up in slavery to the nation of Egypt. And God, through a miraculous work, rescues his people from Egypt, brings them out of the nation of Egypt, and they cross through the Red Sea. Many of us are familiar with this story. And where we find ourselves here is they have been trapped in the wilderness, waiting for what God is going to do among them next. And part of the promise that he has made to his people is that he is going to bring them into what is called in the Old Testament the promised land. And the promised land is really a foreshadow of what we've been talking about as we talk about the second coming of Jesus, right? Like this, this day where everything sad will come untrue. It's this future hope that the people of God were to have that God was going to do something great among them. And so here, they are just about to start the process of entering into this land that God has promised that they would have. But that land is currently occupied by other nations. And so here in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sends spies into the, 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 the area of Jericho to figure out what's going on. And so, so here is where we find Rahab. Look at the second half of verse 1. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. So, so let's just unpack for a moment who Rahab actually is. So we're told here in verse 1 of chapter 2 that Rahab is a prostitute. Now, uh, we're, we're thousands of years removed from this context, but even in our time today, the, the vocation of prostitution is not one that is held in great esteem, right? But even more so in this day, the idea of a prostitute was, was, it was basically the, the lowest uh, level of society in terms of rungs on a ladder. Right? Like she was a complete outcast. 
I mean, you just, again, think for a moment about the context. This is an extremely patriarchal society. And so if Rahab is a prostitute, that means she is not married. If she's not married, that means that she doesn't have anyone who's protecting her, anyone who's looking out for her. And in this day, they didn't have laws. They didn't have any kind of rule of authority that governed the way that that prostitution uh, operated. And so, like, it was a very, very, very sketchy profession, to say the least. And because of the nature of the profession, the person who practiced that profession was considered a complete and utter outsider. So when we talk about Rahab specifically as it pertains to the people of God, Rahab, Rahab would not have been permitted to enter into the temple to worship the God of Israel. So socially, she's an outcast. Religiously or spiritually, she is an outcast. According to her gender and her profession, she is an outcast. Nobody wants anything to do with her unless it's to serve their own need. I mean, she was used and abused by men, but nobody wanted to associate with her in any way. Now think about this for a second, because this is pretty spectacular. It's this woman that God, in his providence, chooses to be a part of the lineage of Jesus. Jesus, the God-man, God with flesh. His lineage includes this woman. It's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's stunning. You know, again, not to belabor this point, but if you or I were to write the story, this isn't who we would write into the story. I mean, just think about the way that we live our lives, right? We don't naturally go towards things that, that don't please us, that, that don't look appealing to us. Like nobody says, I'm, I'm setting out to have like the worst story ever. I want to have the worst house or the worst car. You know, I, wa- I want the, the thing that no one else wants. That's what I want. No one does that. But yet... God, in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, this is what he does. And if you just go through the story of God, Genesis to Revelation, the entire story, what do we see? This isn't a story that is filled with heroes. This isn't a story that is filled with people who always get it right. This is a story of messed up, jacked up, dysfunctional people who have been saved by the grace of God. And there's something beautiful about the reality of the way that God works. And and I can't explain it. But he loves to choose those who are on the outside. In fact, I go so far as to say this. And this is is a, a word of caution for those of us who are well to do, Western, upper middle class you know, West Coast, like, kind of have our lives, for the most part, figured out, or at least give off the appearance that that's the case. One of the prerequisites to coming into a relationship with Jesus, as we will see in Rahab's story, is that we identify as an outsider. If the very essence of what Jesus is doing 
in our world is taking outsiders and making them insiders. How can you become a part of what Jesus is doing if you already perceive yourself to be an insider based on your own merit? See, the first step to actually meeting Jesus is recognizing that you have a need to meet Jesus. If you don't have a need to meet Jesus, then there's no reason for Jesus to come down and meet with you. And so here we get this beautiful picture of God who always chooses the outsider. And, and so I just want to point out a couple of things really quickly about this kind of theological truth. Here, here's the first one, and I think this is really important. There is never a point at which you or I are outside of the grace of God. See, some of us have this idea that, that yeah, we know that God is loving. We know that God is gracious. We know that he's kind. We know, you know, everything I've said so far, you're like, yep, you know, I can check all that off. But if we really get, like, down to it, we don't actually, we don't actually believe that. Like, if we were just to, stop for a second and really evaluate our souls. Like if I asked you, what is the thing that you have done or the thought that you have had that you are the most ashamed of? And like, as like I'm not a junior varsity sinner, right? Like I'm pretty good at sinning. I've had some dark thoughts this week. I can only imagine if you are anything like me, you've had some dark thoughts this week. Thoughts that in your mind, if they came out, if they, if they showed up in real time, I'm kicked out. I'm disqualified from the church, from the grace of God, from his love, from his kindness, like whatever. Here's the beauty of what we see here in God's selection of Rahab to be a part of his story. You're actually never outside of his grace. Like there's nothing that you or I can do to unearn the love and the grace of Jesus. Here's why. Because there's nothing... You did to earn it in the first place. Like, why does God choose Rahab? Why, why does he pick her? There's nothing about her that is appealing. There's nothing about her that, that made him look down on her and say, hey, I need you to be on my team. Like, my team's good. I got a pretty good team. But it's going to be a lot better once I have Rahab, the lying prostitute, on my team. Like, that's not, that's not how this is going. He picked her not because she was good, not because there's something good in her. He picked her because he is good. Jesus' work on the cross is what, what merits us the grace of God. It's not your work, it's his work. And if there's nothing you can do to earn the grace of God, then there's nothing that any of us can do to unearn the grace of God. It's beautiful. But yet so many of us are trying so hard to impress, to please to put on a facade, but the reality is this, is that it's all, it, it doesn't matter. God sees through it all, and here, here's what he sees. He sees the darkest place of your heart. And he says, I choose you. I want you. I pick you. 
And our response to that is, but, but I'm not worthy. Like, don't you know? Didn't you see? Didn't you hear? And he says, yeah, I did. But I choose you anyway. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to know that God loves us no matter what we do, no matter what we don't do, that his grace, his grace is the thing that saves us. Beautiful picture. Second thing I want to point out about this reality of God's choosing of Rahab. And this one, you know, it might not be obvious at first, but, and, I, and I debated whether I actually even wanted to go there um, this morning, but, but I'm going to, okay? We're going to go there. Let's go there. If it's true, if everything I'm saying is true, that God is the one who saves, that God chooses the outsider, that God takes the, the prostitute, the broken, the destitute, the spiritually lost, the, the socially, like those who are on the outside, he takes that person, picks them up, redeems them, saves them, gives them a new identity and a new status. They're no longer this. They are now part of his family. If, if that's actually true, if everything that, that, that I'm saying is true, then, then here is the reality of what we have here in the church. Like that, that, that truth needs to radically shape who we are as a people. In other words, here's what it means for us as the church, that, that we should be, I'm not saying we are, I'm saying we should be, the most radically inclusive community on the planet. Jesus is inclusive. Now, let me just be, let me say exactly what I'm trying to say here. He's exclusive in the sense that, that he is the only way to get to the Father. That's what Jesus said. I'm the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So, you know, to get to God, you got to go through Jesus. He's exclusive in that, in that essence. But, but he's inclusive in that all are invited to come. Every single one of us, prostitute to Wall Street banker, are invited to come to God through Jesus. He, 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 makes, he makes no prejudice in who he invites. Every single one of us is invited to come to the table to eat together because of who he is. It's beautiful. If that's true, and I believe it's true, what does that mean about the church? Like, look around. Here, here's what it means. Here's what it means. Like, don't tweet this. Oh, it's on the internet. Too late. We're a room full of prostitutes. We're spiritual prostitutes that have been invited into the family of God. The, the thing that binds us all together isn't that we're really great. Isn't that, you know, we've accomplished anything. It's that Jesus has saved us. He's taken us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. That's it. That's what binds us together. So we're not a monolith. Right? We don't all vote the same. We don't all think the same. We don't all like the same things. What binds us together is the reality of Jesus. Now, now, just let me hit pause for a second. Hold that thought, okay? Compare that to how the world views community, especially right now. Right now, everything is divided. There, there's no Venn diagrams, right? We forgot what those are. Everything is binary. You're either on my team or you're on the other team. I spent uh, some time down in Seattle like eight days ago, like, oh my gosh. Like people say Americans are crazy and I'm married to a half American. So I, I'm allowed to say this. Like this is all, they're crazy. Sorry if you're American. It's just part of the thing. 
Like everything is political. Everything is political. Like what potato chips do you like? Well, I saw Donald Trump eating these potato chips. So I like these potato chips. I saw Joe Biden eating these potato chips. It's like, how do you guys argue about everything? How does everything become political? But the world we live in right now, that's, that's the reality. Cancel culture, huge part of what's happening in the world. Imagine, like I'm old. So when I was like in high school and college, social media wasn't a thing. Like email had just come out. Like that was pretty cool. Like I still have my original Hotmail account, which I'm super proud of for some reason. Chris underscore sinusol at hotmail.com. I didn't get one of those weird ones like cutiepie24708 at hotmail.com. I just went straight for the name. And there's only one of me, so I didn't even have a weird number after it. But if they had social media when I was a kid, I would be canceled, right? Because, like, it's just, like I was an idiot. We were all idiots. But imagine being a politician or a celebrity right now, right? Like, there's people that are getting paid money to go through your history to find something about you that you did when you were 20 at, like, a frat party so that they can get you fired from your job. Like, that's weird. That's super weird. And we live in this culture that is like so divided. And social media just drives us, this wedge between us further and further apart, further into our echo chambers. Like people are getting paid money right now to actually get you to like move further and further this way or further and further this way. And what ends up happening is we, we kind of weaponize our ideas and we demonize people that are on the other side and we cancel one another and we argue and we lob grenades on social media at each other. And it's super jacked up. And the church is supposed to come into that mess, step into that mess, and say, we're different. We're not a monolith. We're different. Look around. It's okay that we don't all agree on the same things. It's okay that we don't all maybe vote the same way or think the same way on every issue. Here, here, I'm going to go there. One, I'm going to go one more step. So, this week, I was having coffee with a group of guys I have coffee with every Friday. I've been having coffee with them for, gosh, a long time. And uh, there's two Christians. There's, uh, there's a, an atheist, and there's a classic West Coast spiritual but not religious guy. And we had, a, we had a sit-in. We had a visitor that week. And for some reason, I got put on the hot seat because of the new uh, provincial health orders that came out this last week from Bonnie Henry as they pertain to churches. And the guys always want to know what Chris thinks. What's the pastor think about this? We've got a token pastor in our coffee group. <clears throat> so what are you going to do, Chris? You going to check vaccine passports? The door? It's like, no. Well, why not? Because we cannot do anything that would prevent anyone from coming to worship Jesus. Now, we will do everything on the other side of the doors to make it as safe as possible for every single person, but you guys, we can't divide over this stuff. We can talk about it, we can fight about it, we can disagree, but we can't divide over it. It's not what defines who we are as a community. In fact, I will go so far as to say this, I love the fact that in this community there are people on varying ends of the spectrum on varying issues. Do you know why? Because it forces us to figure out what it looks like to love people that we don't agree with that maybe frustrate us, and that bother us. And I just want to say this about our church. We have not done this perfectly, okay? No, no, no. We're just as dysfunctional as any other community. We just talk about our dysfunction. We haven't done this perfectly. But we've done this very well. I'm proud of our church. There's been people that have left over stances we took or didn't take. 
But we are fighting for unity. Unity around Jesus. Amen? And can I just say to us, we must continue to fight for unity. Like we got an email last week and, and it, was, it wasn't a complaint. It was, it was a, a, a concern. And it was worded so well. So full of grace. And the response from the elders was so good and so full of grace. And it's like, that's what it looks like. If we all agree, it's fake unity. If we're a monolith, it's false unity. But when we don't agree and we're willing to do this or not do that or try this for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters, it tells the world a different story. It tells the world that we're just a community of broken, messed up people who are desperate for Jesus. And he's our priority. So I just want to encourage us in that, but I want us to call, I want to call us to continue to fight for unity. Here's why. Because the thing, the thing that binds us together as a community is that God saves us. Amen? He saves us. Okay, I got two more points. Gosh, I think. Here we go, okay? Buckle up, buckle up. I, that went way longer than I intended. Okay, let's go Joshua chapter 2. I'm just going to get right to it. I don't even try and make it pretty. No good transitions or smooth nothing. Okay, here we go. Joshua chapter 2, verse, we'll go right down to verse 17. Here's what it says. Now the men, those are the Israelites who were with Rahab in her, uh, in her home. They said to her, this oath you made, uh, you made us swear, um, swear, well, let me try that again. This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which, oh no, this is, no, oh, I screwed it up, guys. Okay, we're going to go back up. Sorry, we're going back up. This is what happens when, I, when you rush me. Verse 11, just bring a lunch. We would have been fine. Verse 11, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So here's what happens. Rahab welcomes in these spies. She figures out who they are. And, and she realizes that, oh gosh, these guys are from Israel. And the God of Israel has been doing some pretty awesome stuff in the world, right? He, he rescued them from slavery. He did some things in the, in the nation of Egypt. He did some things to these other kings. And now he's coming for Jericho. And here we have... Uh, uh, Rahab actually making a profession of faith, right? Like if you just look at the words, for the Lord your God is God in heaven and above and on the earth below. So, so Rahab is like, I actually believe your God is the God. Now, now here's the thing. Think about this with me for just a second. What does Rahab actually know about God at this point, the God of Israel? Nothing. She's heard a little bit about him, but she does, like if you had said, hey, can, Rahab, can you unpack for us the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement? Don't know it. Rahab, do you know the five solas of the, the Reformation? I don't know them. I'm sorry. I, I, I just don't know them. Uh, can, do, do you know what justification by faith alone, through grace alone is? No, I don't. But yet I'm going to declare, I'm going to declare the God of Israel to be the God that I worship. Some commentators go so far as to say that Rahab at this point is actually, her declaration of, of God as God is actually just an opportunistic declaration. Like the most charitable reading of this is like, hey, I've seen your God do some stuff and now I want to worship him. But, but most people would say, here's what she's actually saying. Hey, your God's been like knocking down all these other nations and I know ours is about to go next. Could I tag along with you guys? 
Like, it wasn't actually like, oh, yeah, like, I've studied and I believe. And this is like, like, this is like, like, weak, feeble faith. Like, she doesn't have like a strong faith. But check this out. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. She, she doesn't just skate by into heaven because she prayed a prayer. There's something about her declaration here that allows her to be actually acknowledged and recognized in the genealogy of Jesus. What is it? Well, we know it's not her moral uprightness. We know, we know it's not even her faith. Here's what it is. It's the object in which she places her faith in. No, just for a second, think about this idea of faith, right? Some of us are like, I'm not a person of faith. I'm a person of reason. Not true. Everybody is a person of faith. You might say to yourself, yeah, I, I don't have faith in Jesus, or I'm going to not even answer the faith question. There, you just need to understand, there's no such thing as a, a null position when it comes to faith. Faith is like, it's like a commodity, and you have to place it somewhere. And so the question isn't if you have faith. The question is, what are you placing your faith in? Now, now what's interesting about Rahab is, again, she has this weak, feeble faith, but, but here is the reality. Strong faith in a weak object does not save. But weak faith in a strong object does save. So lots of faith. I've, I've watched the YouTube videos. I've studied. I've done my research sitting on the toilet scrolling social media. Okay? I've got lots of faith in a bad thing. It's wrong. But I have little faith in a strong thing. That can save. Let me give you an example. You're falling down the side of a cliff to your imminent death. What are you going to do as you're falling, as you're sliding down the side of the mountain? You see all these roots and branches sticking out? Are you going to like pull out your phone and like quickly do a physics experiment? Like I'm falling at this rate and I know that that branch's diameter is such that if I grab it at the right angle, then I know that it will save me. No. No, that's not what you're going to do. You're just going to grab for whatever you can get your hand on. And guess what? If you get the right one, it doesn't matter what you think about it. It's going to hold you. Rahab is falling down the side of a mountain. She knows that the Israelites are coming. She knows what's happened to the last couple of nations that have tried to stand their ground and she knows what is in front of her and she's like, I got to grab onto something. You guys are right in front of me. I'm going on this team. And it gets her in the genealogy of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11, which is the, you know, what they call the, the hall of fame of faith. She's listed there. She's listed in James chapter two as, as held up as an example of faith. Because she's great? No. Because she knew a lot? No. Because she was super religious? No. But because she took this weak, feeble faith and she placed it in the right thing. And isn't this the essence of the Christian life? Isn't this the essence of coming to Jesus? It's recognizing that you have great need and just throwing yourself at his feet. There's this great clip that I would highly recommend you go look up. Just look up uh, Alistair Begg. He's a preacher, a Scottish preacher, the man on the middle cross. It's like a three and a half minute clip. And it's a three and a half minute clip where he talks in Luke chapter 23. 
Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's the two thieves on either side of him. And, and one of the men is hurling insults, right? They're also being crucified and hurling insults, he's hurling insults on Jesus. And the other one's like, dude, lay off. Like, just give this guy a break. Like, he's dying, right? He's already having a bad day. And Jesus turns to the, the one thief and he says, surely you will be with me in the coming age. Now think about this man for a second. Like, what did he know? Had he ever been to a Bible study? No. Did he even know Jesus' name? We're not sure. Did he know anything about church membership? He didn't. Did he know what time church services were at? No, he didn't. Imagine what it would have been like for him. And I don't know how this all works, right? Like, I don't know how it works when we get to heaven. But imagine what it would have been like for him when he got to heaven. Right? He's standing in front of whoever is the gatekeeper. Let's just say, here, let's just be heretical. It's an angel, okay? There's an angel there checking ID. Not vax passports, just ID. Too soon? Too soon? Um, if you didn't like that, you can email me at Ken DeSaw. <laughs> so, um, and the angel's like, why are you here? Like, I'm checking the list, checking it twice, trying to find out who's naughty and nice. That's another one that we don't believe in. But um, wh- why, are, why are you here? What's he going to say? Now, if his sentence starts with the pronoun I, he's answered it wrong. Because I have faith. Because I go to church. Because I, because I did this. Because I prayed a prayer when I was a little kid. If if that's how he starts the sentence, if that's how we start that sentence, we got it wrong. We have to start by saying, because he, because of Jesus, because of Jesus' work on the cross, because of Jesus' pursuit of me, because of Jesus' love, because of Jesus' affection, because of his work on our behalf, I can stand here. Like, just think about this man. What's he saying? He's going to say, I don't know. I don't know why I'm here. The man in the middle said I could come. That's all I got. I don't got any. I don't even know his name. But here I am. Isn't that the gospel? That's us. That's Rahab. That's you. That's me. We have no idea. We, I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. But yet, the man in the middle cross said we could come. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And we see this weak, feeble faith of Rahab. This pagan, this outsider, this unworthy woman. And she's in Jesus' genealogy. Man, I identify with that. Don't you identify with that? Maybe not. Maybe you have great faith. Maybe maybe you're morally upright and religiously pure. I don't know. Well, I do know. I'm just being nice right now. You're not. And if you think you are, and if you think you have great faith, you're fooling yourself. And the prerequisite to coming into the kingdom is to actually recognize that you're just like Rahab. You're just like the thief. You're a disaster. You're a mess. You don't know enough. You haven't done enough. The darkness of your heart is real. The darkness of my heart, friends, I can say it to you because I know it's true of me. The darkness of my heart is real, and I need, I need Jesus. I need him. 
Okay, I'm gonna close, I'm gonna invite the band up. Gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm just ruining everything today. Here's where I'm gonna close. Okay, I want you to, if you got one of these on the way, and this is communion here, okay? And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to hold this in your hand. Just hold it, okay? I'm, this is gonna be a long communion, not like crazy long, because, well, because, but it's gonna be, it's gonna be a couple minutes. But I, I want you to hold it, and here's why. Now we're going to go to verse 17, chapter 2, okay? So Rahab, right? She's lied. We didn't even get to the fact that she's a lying prostitute, like a really, really bad prostitute, I guess. She's having this interaction with the, the, the spies, and they're kind of coming to a deal. Here's what verse 17 says. Now the men said to her, this oath you made to protect us, swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied, listen to this, you've tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father, mother, or your brothers and all your family into the house. So here's what's gonna happen, right? The Israelites are gonna come in, they're gonna, they're, you know, they're gonna wall up Jericho, right? If you know the story, like it's, the walls are gonna fall, there's songs about it. And, and these guys say to her, hey, if you take this scarlet cord, the one that she used to let the spies uh, escape with. If you leave that in your window when we come, we'll know where you live and and you won't, like you'll be saved and your family will be saved. Okay, if you have your Bibles, quickly, Joshua 6. So they come, they march around the city, all this stuff happens. Here we go, verse 15, on the seventh day. Keep holding this, okay, hold this. On the seventh day, uh, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same Manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests surrounded, uh, sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. So they come, the city gets destroyed, but Rahab is saved. Okay, she's saved. She doesn't die. Her and all who are in her house are saved. What was it? What was it that caused her to be saved? How did they know? Red cord, right? Red cord. She's got a red cord. They know. Now, now let me just ask you. She sees the spies come, right? They do, this is like a, a seven-day thing where they're coming and they're marching around the sea. She know, keep holding this. She knows that something's going down. What is, what is she like in that moment, right? Is she in the hot tub on the roof sipping margaritas thinking to herself, I got this. I got this cool cord in my window. I'm going to be fine. I don't think so. I don't think so. My guess, her and whoever in her family is in her apartment at that moment are hiding. They're trembling. They're afraid. She's probably praying to her old pagan god. She's probably rubbing her lucky rabbit's foot. Uh, she's probably like, hey, I'll throw you a prayer too, God of Israel, whatever it's going to take to possibly save me. I'm, wi I'm willing. And the city comes down and they're like, oh, we're, we're still here. What is that? It's God's saving work. Commentators say that this story mirrors the, the, the salvation of God's people from Exodus, the, the Passover where the, the blood of the lamb on the door saved the people of God. We know from a few weeks ago, Matt preached in Matthew's gospel that the Passover, Jesus takes that story and he says, this is actually about me. This is about my 
body broken for you. This is about my blood shed for you. Jesus, he's our red cord. He's our red cord. He is our salvation. He is the thing by which we are saved. It's beautiful. And so as we come to the table, and and this is why we want to do this every single week, because we never want to forget that we, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Our faith is weak. Our attempts at religion are poor. Our sin is great, but his grace, it is more. So I'm going to invite you to open this. To take this wafer out. To look at it, to hold it, to touch it. There's a reason why Jesus wants us to do this on on a regular basis, it's because he wants us, and it's physical, because he wants us to actually touch, to feel. Like the psalmist says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is nothing but a stale wafer, but this represents the broken body of Jesus. Broken for you. Do in remembrance of him. And to take this, this juice which is a picture of the shed blood of Jesus. This this is our red cord. Church, this is good. Some of you today, like you might not be followers of Jesus. You might not be Christians. And you might be sitting here going, I don't know very much. I'm not very smart. I did really bad things last night. Guess what? So did Rahab. When the spies left, she probably continued to prostitute herself. All you have to do is have enough faith. Jesus said the only work you have to do is believe. All you have to do is have enough faith to take the red cord and hang it in the window. That's it. He does the rest. It's his work, not your work. For some of you, maybe this right now, this is your moment. You're going to take and drink in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we thank you. I, I thank you for a church that is gracious to let me talk way too long. but I'm more thankful for your love and your mercy and your kindness and your compassion. Like you are just so fiercely for us. So good. I know there are people here, they've been here a long time maybe, but they need to know today that you are for them, not against them. That yes, yes, they're inadequate. Yes, they're insufficient, but you are not. There are people here who are on a faith journey. They're wondering, they're exploring. Spirit of the living God, would you speak to them right now? Would you whisper in their ear that you love them, that you want to know them? And Jesus, as we respond in song to your goodness and grace, may our hearts be filled with joy to know that we are loved by you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus, your good, good name. And all God's children said, Amen.